VPN, depending on how it's configured, can see a lot. In fact, it can see everything. So you're, you're completely correct in exercising maximum caution because we're taking the information away from the ISP and then we're entrusting it into a private entity. And that's really where the, the trust comes in. This is Locking Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This week, we're going to talk about last week, starting with the news. On Malwarebytes Labs, we dove into the latest report from the pro-daft threat intelligence team, which analyzed a highly sophisticated group of cyber criminals targeting large corporations and public institutions around the world. The cybercrime group is dubbed Silverfish, after the slippery, surprisingly ugly house pest. By investigating one of Silverfish's command and control servers, the cybersecurity researchers learned about the group's refined management. For example, Silverfish uses a team-based workflow model and even a triage system, similar to modern project management platforms. Each user of the management tool can write comments about upcoming and past victims, denoting prioritization, assignment, and management amongst the cybercriminals themselves. The comments also reveal that Silverfish's members avoid striking universities and small companies, which they considered worthless to attack. Instead, Silverfish focuses on critical entities like energy, defense, and government. Somewhat remarkably, the group has also developed a remote malware detection sandbox in which it uses actual enterprise victims to test malicious payloads, in effect letting the group track the detection rate of those payloads in real time. Importantly, the researchers also found strong ties between Silverfish and the SolarWinds attacks discovered last year, along with the Evil Corp cybercrime group. This is all to say that Silverfish is sophisticated. They have a hierarchy, they have a management system, and they have assigned tasks and responsibilities. At this point, I wonder if they have a director of human resources. We also peered into a popular phishing scam's devastating impact. Two weeks ago, we found that many residents in the United Kingdom were receiving similar texts about supposedly held packages, which required an extra fee of about three pounds before final delivery. The text messages appeared legitimate enough, with at least one text message including a link to the URL uk.royalmail-bill.com. People who followed that link were asked to fill out two forms that asked for their name, address, phone number, and email address, along with their credit card payment information, including the credit card number and the security code on the back of the card. To us, on the outside, this may look like an obvious phishing scam, but to victims, it was actually pretty covert. And as we learned last week, it proved to be catastrophic for one victim. According to one scam victim, just days after she submitted her payment details on the malicious website, the scammers behind it made multiple direct debits from mobile phone companies and technology stores, purchased 300 pounds worth of goods at the retailer Argos, and they canceled her current debit banking cards and issued new ones as replacements. Worse, the scammers then called the victim on her phone, masquerading as her bank, and tricking her into transferring her funds into a, quote, replacement, end quote, account. 
There isn't a happy ending here. There is just a cautionary tale and a reminder, particularly to those in the cybersecurity community. Detections, detections of malware, detections of scams, those aren't just numbers. They are attacks against people. Lives can be ruined here. Let's be considerate of that. Our main story today concerns VPN trust. Let me explain. For the uninitiated, and for those who've avoided countless commercials and ad spots from who knows how many startups, VPNs are in right now. And there's legitimately good reason for that. VPNs, or virtual private networks, can hide your web browsing activity from your internet service provider. They can encrypt and protect your web activity when you're using public Wi-Fi networks, whether that's at a local cafe or at a hotel you're staying at when traveling. And they can help you access materials that may not be available in your country, letting you pose as a web user in a different location. If all of that sounds good, it is. But let's focus on that first advantage, that VPNs can hide your internet activity from your internet service provider, which may want to use that activity for advertising purposes. Hiding your internet activity, including the websites you visit, the searches you make, the files you download, that doesn't mean that a VPN disappears those things. It just means that the VPN itself gets to see that information instead. So we can start to see why trusting, really fully trusting your VPN is so critical. Think of it like this. Let's say I have a cat who, naturally, I adore. But I'm leaving for business for two weeks, and I have little faith that my roommate can take care of her. So it wouldn't make sense then to recruit someone else who I also do not trust to take care of my cat. Now, internet activity isn't our cats, but our cats are much of the world's internet activity. But the bigger point stands. When choosing to protect your online activity from someone else, you have to trust the protector. And in the broad, growing VPN landscape, that can be kind of hard. In fact, last month, the data of more than 21 million mobile VPN app users was swiped and advertised for sale online. Worse, that was far from an isolated incident. In recent years, email addresses, payment information, device IDs, and internet activity logs have all been exposed by untrustworthy VPN providers. Complicating the matter is that VPN providers don't work alone. They have third-party contracts with data centers that provide servers. And what happens if one of those data centers messes up? How would you even know? To help us understand what is at stake when choosing a VPN, what a VPN sees, what it could expose, why those exposures could harm you, how to trust a VPN provider, we're speaking today to J.P. Taggart, Senior Security Researcher at Malwarebytes. J.P., welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. Let's get right into it. I think it's important to really set the stage here in this conversation about trusting any VPN provider and I think a good way to do that, to set that stage, is to start by asking, what can your VPN provider know about you, right? As I was saying at the top of the show, they see things instead. What do those things reveal? What can your internet traffic reveal to them? Well, what you're doing when you're using a VPN is essentially, as you mentioned earlier, transferring trust. 
So you don't trust your roommate to take care of your cat. So you're going to go see someone else. You don't trust your local ISP not to snoop at your traffic and try to sell it to marketers. So you're going to try to cloak that traffic. But the VPN, depending on how it's configured, can see a lot. In fact, it can see everything. So you're you're completely correct in exercising maximum caution because we're taking the information away from the ISP and then we're entrusting it into a private entity. And that's really where the, the trust comes in. But also, more than the trust, maybe looking at your threat model. If your goal by using a VPN is to circumvent geolocation or to not have your information sold to marketers, that's good. That's commendable. But if you live in a country with a little bit more authoritarian of a government and you want to post on a forum and express your displeasure at how they're running things, those decisions can have some pretty pretty big consequences. So this is what I mean by your threat model. It's not unacceptable to have multiple ones. So yeah, I just want to, let's call out the elephant in the room. I just want to watch Netflix and have access to content that's geolocation. Mm-hmm. Carries a different threat model than, well, I want to post a blog post where I'm critical of the government. And if they find out who I am, well, I get disappeared. I am very happy that you immediately brought up the threat model, right? Because in researching VPNs and finding what they're useful for, right? Which like you said, is is a variety of things. You know, let's, hey, let's call it out. You want to watch Netflix shows that are only available in a different country. And most people do. <laughs> but if your threat model includes a three-letter agency, you know, from a government, an intelligence agency, you need more than a VPN. The intelligence agencies are extraordinarily powerful. And so thinking that a VPN is the, you know, one-size-fits-all everything solution. It doesn't work that way. Again, we we have to match them to the threat models here. I wanted to go back and ask with what a VPN can see, is there like a limit to what they can see? Could they, for instance, collect your personal information in a way that you didn't anticipate? So when you're using a VPN, you're still afforded the protections of HTTPS. So if, for example, you're transiting web traffic, HTTP, HTTPS, you still have the protection of HTTPS for some traffic. So the VPN wouldn't be able to, for example, collect your Facebook credentials or something like that because there's already other protection mechanisms that are in place. It's when you have clear text communications over HTTP that that's fully accessible by them. So we've seen a gradual migration, not as fast as some people would like, and I would agree with that, towards HTTPS absolutely everywhere. But you can still infer a lot of information from the traffic. So your VPN provider could say, okay, well, I can't read the content of what's going on, but I can tell where the starting point is and where the end point is. And even that is a lot of data. And that's that's called metadata. And I mean, some governments have gone on record and said that they kill people with metadata. So still pretty important information that's transiting it over, over the network. And yeah, the VPN could totally see all of that. 
And there are countless examples of VPN providers that say, oh, you know, we, we've got a full zero trust system. We keep absolutely no logs. We don't keep the logs so that when we're served with a request, we could just turn around and say, well, we built the system so that there wouldn't be any logs, so there's nothing for us to give. Mm-hmm. And time and time again, that hasn't necessarily proven to be true. And there's concrete examples of that, instances of a VPN promising that they weren't going to keep any logs and, in fact, keeping them. I've experienced it in the past, doing malware research. Mm -hmm. Our local ISP has a very dim view of any malware traffic, even if it's emanating from a controlled environment from a researcher, for example, from me. And that was one of the reasons why I was pushed towards a VPN a good, like, 10 years ago, much before they became like the norm, because otherwise my ISP would have cut off my internet. And it's quite an eye-opener when your ISP says, hey, we've detected malicious traffic emanating from your computer. And I'm like, really? Because I thought you guys just provided me with internet, but apparently <laughs> you're looking at my stuff? That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it really reveals, like you said, what they can see and mm-hmm. the decisions they make on what they can see. I wanted to go back to that little part you talked about, about metadata to kind of give another example of it to our listeners who may not be super aware with what metadata is or, or how it works, or also really hear the conclusions that can be drawn, the inferences. The example I've always used here is in a different realm, talking about phone metadata. Let's say that you are calling a suicide prevention hotline every night at like midnight right? Your phone company, right, doesn't have access to the content, the words you said, hey, my name is X, I'm feeling this, you know, but it doesn't take any understanding whatsoever to see like, hey, let's look at this phone number. Oh, it's for a suicide prevention hotline. Oh, that call is coming in regularly every night. That's all you need to to know what was discussed on the phone, you know? So it's just this way to say that, like, look, you don't need the content of a, of a conversation to know what happened in that conversation. These things can be extraordinarily revealing. I wanted to also kind of follow up here with this thing you were saying about how there's a lot of companies out there that said they don't collect logs, you know, they don't collect logs of your activity, what you're doing. And then as we'll get to later, we'll talk about some examples where that's proven not true. On those promises, on those promises of VPN providers are like, hey, we're not going to collect logs. Does a company that says it doesn't collect logs, could it, for instance, though, be collecting something else that it doesn't tell you about? So, hey, I don't collect logs, but whoops, I guess I didn't tell you. Obviously, I'm going to collect your credit card info, your physical address, your passwords, maybe even in an insecure way. Can that happen? Does that happen? It does happen and it can happen. And it's it's been revealed to have happened in the past. So one of the interesting things with a VPN is some of them try to address this by saying, hey, we accept cryptocurrencies as as a payment method. So you can create an account using a fictitious name, pay with a cryptocurrency Mm -hmm. so that it's not tied to a particular credit card, which is an easy way to backtrack to the original owner. And then the assumption is it's a zero trust system when you when you negotiate with that VPN for traffic. And it would be very difficult to go back and say, we know for sure that this is the person using the service. So there are examples like that. And that's definitely something to take in consideration when you're evaluating 
one, what threat model you're going to apply to this particular internet activity, and two, which VPN you should trust with your traffic for, let's say, routing a telephone call over the internet through a VPN to talk to a suicide prevention line. Because there's always the possibility that the phone company is going to turn around and say, I'm going to sell all the information regarding the calls to marketing companies or maybe to an insurance company. And then it's a good question, how would an insurance company react saying, we know that this person keeps calling a suicide prevention hotline. Are we going to accept his policy? Are we going to accept to insure him? What kind of risk level is involved in that? What are we going to charge him knowing that information? And that's the kind of information I think that, you know what, I don't think that company should have. Yeah, I just, what a quick descent we have made into dystopia. (laughs) Just Very, very, very quick, yes. Right. An immediate free fall into like, yeah, what, what does happen if an insurance company gets its hands on this information? And then it makes a determination based off of it. And like you said, I, I very much agree here. That's not information that a company should have. That's not information that an insurance company should have or absolutely make determinations based off of. Imagine the, um, imagine the equation. Imagine the algorithm that has a field that allows for that quote-unquote risk factor and then how that equates into a rate, you know, into a rate increase or decrease. It's so awful, I think, is the only way you can put it. On this, there's a lot of information that we've already talked about that could be revealed, that a a VPN could see. So that's just kind of setting the stakes here. Because this information can be so sensitive then, right? What is at stake if a VPN provider doesn't keep its promises, you know, to its users? So in other words, what can go wrong for people who unwittingly, through no fault of their own, are choosing an untrustworthy VPN? Well, we come back to the whole threat model. If your threat model is, I want to watch Rick and Morty and on Netflix, and it's only available in the US, not dramatic. But your financial information, if you bought that VPN account with your personal credit card, that could get leaked. That's something that could go wrong. And then there's the other side of, of the equation. You're in a government that's not very permissive. Even the fact of using a VPN might be a dangerous thing in that case. But let's say you're using that so that you can access your social media and say, I don't like the way the country's being run, then it can go all the way to, you know, you're just not there one day. It's also important here to note, like you were saying that, you know, if you work within a country that has an oppressive government, an authoritarian government, I always think these conversations are pretty important for folks to understand that sometimes we have to leave the confines of the United States in understanding some of these issues, right? Because hearing something like that, like hearing like, okay, a government can remove a dissident, that can happen in other countries. Like, (laughs) that isn't, oh, that's never happened before. That is something that human rights workers take into consideration. You know, that that is part of their threat model. That is part of journalists' threat model, investigative reporters. And it's also it also kind of spotlights that depending on who you are, your threat model might actually change based on the country you're in. I used to work at a digital rights organization. My threat model, I think, was still very, very low. I do not believe for any reason that I had the three-letter agencies really after me. But my threat model still changed. You know, when I went to another country, I just had to be aware of that stuff. That's stuff that you just kind of have to 
sort of just grapple with, you know, to again, just let's leave the confines of the U.S. in this conversation because it really is a global issue for some folks. I don't want to depress you, but even within the confines of the USA, there's been numerous documented cases of certain three-letter agencies targeting political dissidents and mm-hmm. activists as well. And again, we've spiraled into a really dark place. <laughs> right, right. Let's move on a little bit here. We've talked a little bit about right, what you know, what's at stake. And we've mentioned a couple of times, hey, you know, this has happened, you know, and not even the political dissident stuff, but there have been problems with VPN providers. They have leaked information. They've left data exposed. Can we go through a few of those examples when things did go wrong, you know, for VPNs and for their users? So for users, one example that comes to mind for me, there was one guy from a splinter group from Anonymous called Lulsec who used HMA as a VPN provider. And, well, it, you know, the FBI approached HMA and said, give us your logs, which apparently there weren't, but apparently there were, and that guy wound up in jail. Now, I don't condone what he was doing mm-hmm. or how he was using a VPN in an effort to cloak what he was doing, because that's those were criminal activities. Yeah. But it's it's a perfect example for people who go in maybe with the threat model of a journalist saying, I'm going to talk to my contacts and we're going to work on exposing a big story and that false sense of security sets in. So there's one example. There was that blog post on our blog about all of these free VPNs that had their credentials. You mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast that they were available for sale on the on the dark web. Yeah. So there's another example, and that one is, is super salient because a lot of people will look at a VPN, they'll look at their threat model, and they'll go, I don't really want to pay 70 or or $100. And hey, look at that. There's a free service right there. And that'll be very attractive for them. And I can't, like, there's so many of them that are available. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is with something like that, you, you have to stop and say, Hmm. Is there going to be some altruistic millionaire who's going to set up a VPN service and say, I'm going to make it available for free. Uh, We're not going to charge you for anything. And then you can access whatever you want using this VPN with the illusion that you're, you're doing this in a secure and safe way. And we're not going to collect any information to finance the product. I'm just going to, you know, take a big fat wad of dollar bills and light it up and burn it. So you kind of get what you pay for. And I'm seeing a lot of people using uh, free services and they're like, they're chanting and saying, this is awesome. And every time I'm like, you know what, if it's free, the old adage applies, you get what you pay for, or if it's free, you're the product. Mm -hmm. So I would be very, very leery of those. There's another example of stuff that can go wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah. There was, um, Following on that, right, we had that blog post. Like you said, there were, there were three VPN providers, Super VPN, Gecko VPN, and Chat VPN. Super VPN is extraordinarily popular on the Google Play Store. I believe it's, according to the Google Play statistics, it's racked up more than 100 million downloads. This is a, again, extraordinarily popular product. And this isn't the first time that SuperVPN has been named in a privacy mishap. In fact, the group VPN Mentor released a report, I think last year, 
that um, SuperVPN and a group of six others, UFO VPN, what a name, Free VPN, also what a name, uh, Flash, Secure, Rabbit, all of those with VPN appended at the end. Anyways, all of those had left customer data exposed. And the important thing that VPN Mentor noted was that they left internet activity logs exposed and all of these VPN providers said they were no logs companies, right? That we're going back to that. They didn't keep logs. Well, if that's true, how on earth did regular cybersecurity researchers find them exposed, you know, online? I think that's all. Hey, look, these are companies leaving things exposed. Part of what complicates also the relationship with the VPN is sometimes you have to trust who the VPN works with. So this isn't a data exposure. This isn't a wide-scale breach. But a couple of years ago, NordVPN, popular VPN provider, right, suffered an isolated incident after a third-party data center added a remote access system to a server in Finland, right? And they did that, and they didn't tell NordVPN. And it wasn't found out until after that, that system was added that it was reportedly insecure, could have allowed a hacker to see like basic parts of internet traffic, just the websites again, reportedly, but not likely not the content. And here, this situation is, okay, I, I've trusted a VPN provider. How am I supposed to know every data center they work with? How am I supposed to know every third-party contract they have? How am I supposed to keep track of this specific example when a remote system is added? I mean, I'm not going to manage that. I'm not going to know about that either. And so again, it's just kind of getting to this, this idea that it's complicating the relationship. It's making it difficult. I wanted to go back to the examples that we have here, right? There were some of the apps that we named. And I also believe that you told me once there was an example of a VPN provider that was using its users' machines as ports. Yes. I'm not entirely certain. Tell me more. Yeah. So this one is a couple of years old. I don't know if they're still active, but they were called Hola VPN, and it was a free service. And everybody, again, jumped on the bandwagon and thought this was yeah. absolutely awesome because not only was it a free service, but it was fairly reliable and moderately fast. And what they were doing is they were using the people who installed the clients, and they were using them as a way of creating a mesh. So if you have one client that installs in the UK and one that installs in the US, they would transit the traffic through the machines, which is just, yeah. I didn't <laughs> dig in deeper other than to advise uh, someone that was close to me, no, uninstall this. <laughs> but yeah, I yeah. mean, th these are the kind of things, and there's an example where, where that could just turn out super horribly bad. Like I'm using the VPN service for a nefarious use and the police show up at whoever the exit node is. Yeah, so. right. And again, to, to kind of hammer on that, the police show up at the person who didn't do anything's, anything wrong's house. Exactly. When you were talking about Nord, that's another problem that VPNs in general face. So as they accrue more clients, they have to deploy more exit nodes because it makes you much more attractive as a service if you can say, we have a thousand exit nodes. And if you want to come out of like Kazakhstan or China or the US or whatever, we have them. And all of those have to be deployed on hardware, which maybe doesn't belong to them. Maybe they're just renting it 
enough to deploy a virtual instance. And then yes, that, that example of, of some obscure third party lights out application that allows you a backdoor access into that system, that's kind of a typical setup for remotely accessing computers. So there are a lot of those around. Talking about these companies that had problems, you were mentioning that there's no such thing as like an altruistic millionaire out there who's just dumping money into a product and saying, you know, I will do all of these things. I will, you know, my service will collect no logs. It will protect your privacy. It will have all the right cybersecurity best practices. And that that doesn't that doesn't happen. And this is probably a big question because I think some people might think, no, there's got to be like an exception, right? And they might feel comfortable with with the service they use that's that's free. Why doesn't that exist? Why why isn't there an altruistic model of a hey, non of a nonprofit running? Have you got a million dollars? <laughs> Just give it to me. No ties, no interest, no expectations of return. Deploying a VPN service is, you know, it requires infrastructures. It requires servers. It requires staff. It requires coders to make sure that it's done properly or that it's done the way that you want it to work. You have to have all this infrastructure that's, that's a prerequisite for it to even take off and work. So all of that has to be paid. All these people that work on there, nobody's going to do it for free. I mean, no one is that altruistic. And if they, the end product is offered for free, you have to look at the business model. How are these people making money? Oh, they're offering a VPN for free. Are they going to offer in-app ads? Are they going to, air quote, sanitize my traffic and turn and sell it to uh, an advertising company. How do you sanitize internet traffic so that it's anonymized? It's almost impossible to do. We've continually seen researchers have access to data sets that were, air quote, anonymized, and then turn around and say, oh, no, here, we can find exactly who that was. So there's always going to be some sort of a business model where a free product isn't necessarily free. And then it becomes an issue of like, Again, look at your threat model. Am I willing to use this product? And I wouldn't, especially if they start promising, you know, that, you know, we don't track, we don't do logs, we don't charge you, we don't show you ads, we don't like, but then what do you do? Because they got to be making money somewhere at the end of the line. So that would raise red flags for me even more. We've talked a lot on today's episode about mishaps, right? Things going wrong. And I always worry in these conversations, right? I mean, like, within a couple of minutes, like you said, we, we quickly approach dystopia. But I always, I always worry in these conversations. And I think we as a company always worry about these things of this idea of privacy nihilism setting in, right? That someone hears all this stuff, and they're like, all right, well, then what can I do? What's the point? If, if so much of it is bad, why take the time or how even to find the good, right? And so I want to pivot away from that. And I, I want to help our listeners. I want to help users try to understand, you know, what should a person then be looking for when making that crucial decision to trust a VPN provider? How do they even go about it? So I would say, for one, the VPN's reputation. You can do a bit of OSINT web search, open source intelligence search on, on the... VPN provider and see, have they had a breach in the past? If they did, 
did they talk about it or were they arm barred into revealing that yes, it occurred by someone else saying, hey, look, I found all your stuff. Where are their main offices based? Because some VPN providers, if they're based in a certain country, might suffer greater influence from the local government. So if you were to buy a VPN service that is based out of China and headquartered in China, I'm not exactly sure it's going to be safe. Just as much as if you buy one that's headquartered in the US, then there's a different threat model where that one might not be as safe. And it looks you have to look at what you're going to do and which one you're going to use. Something else is, yeah, how forward they, they are with past breaches. Overall reputation, how many people are using them, but I wouldn't make that the heaviest factor. In some cases, some VPN services will have something that's called a warrant canary. So it's mm-hmm. kind of a trickery thing with the U.S. law. You can't force someone to lie So what they do is they issue a warrant canary. They post this on their website and they're saying, Mm -hmm. as of this date, no government document forces us to spy on our customer base. And they keep issuing it at regular intervals. And if they stop issuing it, then you know that they've been forced to modify their systems or allow a three-letter agency to have access to their data. And that has stood up in law where if that mechanism is in place, it's not illegal because you can't force someone to lie and say, oh, no, the government hasn't asked me. So that's another cool thing that you can look for. It's all going to boil down to your threat model, and I would not trust any VPN at 100%. So take that with a grain of salt. I think it's also important, something I encountered in writing that, that blog about the, the 21 million folks, you know, potentially 21 million folks whose, whose data had been exposed, finding a, a company that has easily accessible like customer support, I think that's a pretty big thing. Because I will tell you, in reporting on that story, I didn't know how to reach those VPNs. <laughs> like, I couldn't find a way. I couldn't find a web presence beyond a Google Play Store, like publisher profile. And that had zero information on it, you know, in terms of actually reaching them. And I looked at like other, I looked at, you know, other reporting and and everyone seemed to have the same problem that the journalists were having the same problem trying to reach them, couldn't find how to reach them. VPN Mentor, which did the report separate from that blog, they couldn't reach the VPN providers themselves. And they had to recruit journalists to try and get in touch with them. And in their report, they also say, hey, look, we, we just had trouble. Like we couldn't, we couldn't get to all of them. And so I think that just kind of goes to show that like a company that doesn't want to be contacted, you should try and find out why that is. You should, you should try and understand like they're not going to care about your concern. If you're having an issue with the product and you don't even know how to contact them, that's a red flag. I think it's a pretty, a pretty big red flag, I would say. If I remember correctly from that article, they also, to a certain degree of confidence, were able to confirm that a lot of these fly-by-night free VPNs were actually the same. Yeah. Ran on the same infrastructure. And to me, that indicates reputation washing. So if I'm going to make a product, I'm going to call it super cool free VPN. And then after six months to a year, people start going, well, super cool free VPN doesn't have a tech support that I can get a hold of. And 
there was this breach and all this stuff was found online. And then all of a sudden you have like super cool free VPN two, even better, or <laughs> just a completely different name. What you're seeing there is the back end, the infrastructure, all of the security failings that come with that, that might be there are still being used. And we're just slapping a pretty coat of paint on it to keep the business going. And that, that really screams of a complete disregard of your user base. It's whatever. It's just money. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good way to wrap it up there, right? For folks who are who are making that crucial decision, right? It's not all hopeless. There are guidelines you can follow. You can read reviews. You can see the reputation. You can not prioritize, but definitely pay attention to how many you know users does a place have. You can look up if they've had a breach. Were they honest about the breach? And you can also look at how they responded to something that was beyond their control. You have to see how some how a company responds to an issue. I think those are pretty important guidelines to understand and to follow and to look for. And a final guideline here, because I would be remiss to have an entire show talking about the dangers of three-letter agencies and not giving people at least a little thread to pull on if they do not believe that the U.S. engages in some of this activity. Just look up the words Co-Intel Pro. Just please do it, folks. <laughs> um, it's there. It's real. It has happened many years ago. And with that, JP, thank you again so much for being on today's show. Thank you. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we speak with multiple cybersecurity professionals, including Troy Hunt and Chloe Mastagi, about security fatigue. What have they seen in their careers? How do they make sure organizations avoid it? And what can we learn from their experiences? Also, remember that you can read all of our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at www.blog.malwarebytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show. Stay safe, everyone. <laughs>